0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Wake Up. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 27, 2016, the first Sunday in Advent. This is a guest essay by Melissa Early, the pastor of Northbrook United Methodist Church in Northbrook, Illinois. You can read her blog. It's called Waking Up Early at www.MelissaEarly.com. We don't know we are asleep until we wake up. Have you noticed that? I know when I'm ready to take off my glasses at night and put down my book and squiggle under the quilt, pulling it up to my ears and listen to my dog sigh. I can feel the exquisite caving in to the Sunday afternoon nap. I pretend that I'm just resting my eyes, but I know that's a lie, as I move from sitting to prone and rearrange the couch cushions. I know I'm going to sleep, but I don't know that I am asleep until I wake up. I've had nights where sleep hides from me. I hunt for sleep, like I look for my sister and the Lucas kids from across the street and David from next door, when we played hide-and-go-seek on summer nights in Parker, Colorado. On those sleepless nights, I can't find a comfortable position. On those nights, my brain is like an airport tarmac, all noise and heat. I watch the hours tick by. The only way I know that I've slept is by waking up. I glance at the clock to calculate how many hours it's been since I last glanced at the clock. Two hours? Three? Maybe even four? Paul tells the readers of his letter to the Romans in the lectionary this week, You know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. I suspect that most of the letter's recipients did not know that they had fallen asleep. They may have felt as alive in their faith as ever. The relationship between these early Jewish and Gentile followers of Christ was marked by tension following the expulsion of Jews from Rome by Emperor Claudius in 49 CE, and then the Jews return following his death in 54 CE. Gentile believers may have thought that God had given up on the chosen people, and some Jewish believers may have wondered if God was fair and just. Within the passage itself, Paul refers to quarreling and jealousy. There's nothing like a good fight to get the blood stirring. A good fight, though, is also distracting. It keeps us from having to face the empty pews, the fall of church activities in a family's calendar priorities, and the diminishing public pull of the church. Paul urges us to pay attention to the salvation that is at hand. We're like siblings squabbling in the back of the car that's parked at the Grand Canyon. We fight and miss the view, which was the point of the road trip in the first place. Paul's instructions earlier in Romans to let love be genuine... Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, are all helpful words of instructions, as many denominations, judicatories, and churches deal with complex and conflicting issues. Love allows us to continue to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and not as enemies even as we wrestle over important questions. When I woke up on Wednesday, November the 9th, and faced the certainty that Donald Trump would be president, I felt a new stirring to be vigilant, to pay attention, to do everything I could to keep our president-elect from following through on his most outrageous campaign promises. I vowed to register alongside the Muslims in my community, if a registry of Muslims is required, I renewed my commitment to justice for our new for our neighbors. That's a ministry of free or low cost legal services for immigrants. I made donations to Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. In the Sunday sermon following the presidential election, I told my small, reconciling United Methodist Church in an affluent suburb of Chicago that we would keep doing what we had been doing. We are called to follow where Jesus leads, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give water to those who thirst, to protect the vulnerable, to lift up the dignity of every person. Such vigilance is good. This commitment is good it's been easy for well-meaning church folks to get lulled into complacency. We have a tendency to invest more time in picking new sanctuary carpeting than in caring for the vulnerable. More energy congratulating ourselves for being good on the issues than for transforming the world. That Thursday afternoon, a parishioner came into my office and said, what a beautiful day. I hadn't even noticed. The text from Matthew tells us similarly, Keep awake lest the thief enters our house, lest a disaster catches us unaware. But constant wakefulness causes physical and mental damage. Without enough sleep, we impair our immune system, damage our heart, and increase our risk of cancer. Without enough sleep, we decrease our cognitive ability, our memory, and our ability to learn. We decrease our libido and gain weight. Sometimes the church's vigilance for justice is too tight-fisted and clenched-jawed, and we end up as shackled as the people we want to free. Sabbath-keeping helps us claim our freedom from a culture that tells us that we are only what we accomplish. It helps us acknowledge our vulnerability and our dependence on a merciful God equipping us to more fully love our enemy. When we set aside vigilance and work in favor of rest and play, reconnecting with nature and friends, caring for our bodies and our loved ones, we're in a position to trust God more. While the church remains vigilant, may we also wake up to the wonder and mystery of God. Wake up a guest essay by Pastor Melissa Early of Northbrook United Methodist Church. For books this week, I review a title by J.D. Vance. The title is called Hillbilly Elegy, A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis. New York, Harper, 2016. This book is 264 pages long. J.D. Vance, born in 1984, grew up in Middletown, a small town in the southwest corner of Ohio that epitomizes all the chronic woes of America's Rust Belt. It's a people and a place that's been losing jobs and losing hope for as long as he can remember. In what he calls this hub of misery, You find stray dogs wandering around looking for food. You put your old furniture in the front yard. And for lunch, you enjoy a fried bologna sandwich with crumbled potato chips on top. The public schools have been taken over by the state. The misery index as measured by divorce, domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, and unemployment is off the charts. Vance's own mother was married five times, and that does not include the revolving door of father figures that drifted in and out of his life, or for that matter, her descent into heroin and homelessness. Vance says that he wrote his book to explain what it feels like to nearly give up on yourself and why you might do it. His personal story illustrates how and why his people, what he calls the hillbillies, rednecks, and white trash of greater Appalachia, are characterized by cultural isolation, disconnection from our most important institutions, anger, resentment, blame, and, most important of all, feelings of futility and a lack of agency. In other words, that their choices don't matter, Studies have shown that they are the single most pessimistic demographic group in America. It would be nice if all these people needed was more money, a good job, a better economy, or more robust public policies. But the problems run broader and deeper, says Vance, for it's about a culture that increasingly encourages social decay instead of counteracting it. Thus, he writes, our elegy is a sociological one, yes, but also about psychology and community and culture and faith. In a vicious circle, poverty causes social decay, and the social decay worsens the poverty. J.D. Vance is one of the lucky ones who made it out alive all the way to Yale Law School. Today he lives in San Francisco and works as an investment banker. He never pities, excuses, or condescends to his own people. He's proud of his heritage. Nor does he romanticize their plight. He's brutally honest, and many of his stories are painful to read, and even hard to believe. He calls himself a quote-unquote modern conservative, without explaining exactly what that means. He appeals to personal responsibility rather than any government policy, which at best, in his view, can only be a thumb on the scale. At the end of the day, he administers what one reviewer calls a heavy dose of very tough love to his own Appalachian people. That has the ring of truth born of personal experience. But I doubt that very many of his family and friends in Middletown will read his book or hear him interviewed on NPR and so consider his wisdom. The title of the book, Hillbilly Elegy, by J.D. Vance. For movies this week, I review Zero Days from 2016. This documentary film by Alex Gibney, who also made Taxi to the Dark Side, reviews the history and collateral damage of the Stuxnet malware that was launched by the United States and Israel against Iran's Natanz nuclear facility in 2010. At the time, The worm was the largest and most sophisticated piece of malware ever created. But that's not the scary part. When Israel later fiddled with the digital weapon on its own, it infected computers all over the world, including the likes of the KGB and our own computers here in the United States. The monster had turned on its own creator. And however frightening this first digital weapon was, one security expert compares it to a back-alley operation, saying, the age of science fiction cyber warfare is already here. Another expert referred to the revolution in the threat landscape. Think about the physical destruction of power grids, water supplies, rail lines, and, quite literally, any other part of our social infrastructure. And you can bet your last dollar that what we did to Iran, other countries can retaliate in kind. Gibney presses the question of whether Stuxnet was an undeclared act of state-sponsored war. Further, he forces the question of how a democracy that depends upon the rule of law, government accountability, and public discourse can openly discuss this inherently and deeply secret weapon. After conducting war by land, sea, and air, we are now in a post-cyber warfare age. This warfare will be conducted by criminals for profit, by hacktivists to cause chaos, by non-state terrorists who play by their own rule book, and, as this movie shows, by nation states against their perceived enemies. I watched this film on Amazon streaming, and would add that because of the nature of the movie, there's no real need to see it on the big screen. Once again, the name of the movie zero days. In poetry for Advent, this first Sunday in Advent, we've posted a poem by Denise Levertov. It's called On the Mystery of the Incarnation. Denise Levertov lived from 1923 to 1997. On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve in trusts as guest as brother the word thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for sunday for sunday november 27th 2016 i'm daniel b Clendenin.